of chapter 4 last week, and we're going to look at the first 11 verses of chapter 5 this morning. Before we do, let's ask God's blessing on this time. Lord, we thank you so much for just a, a blessing to be in your presence, the blessing, Lord, to, to be praising you with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and Lord, just the fellowship that is only made possible by what you have done on the cross. We love you, Lord. Prepare our hearts to receive your word this morning. And Lord, just simply prepare our hearts for the days that we're living in. And we just ask you these things in your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I need to do one thing. See, when I bend my chin down, I don't want to touch that thing. I'm kind of idiosyncratic that way. So, as I mentioned, we're going to look at the first 11 verses of chapter 5, but what I, what I want to do is I want to read beginning in chapter 4, verse 13, all the way through to verse 11 of chapter 5, just because I want you to hear what it's like without the chapter divisions. Valeriana, she can stay in here. That's nothing. Oh, no, you can't. I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, I didn't mean to embarrass you. I used to just change my daughter Sarah at the baseball game right there in front of God and everybody, so it didn't bother me. Of course, it might bother the, some of you that are within smell shot. <laughs> All right, so sorry. Getting back to what I'm going to do, I'm going to read it, like I said, in chapter 4, beginning in verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 11, just so that you can hear it as you see how these two things relate. Chapter 4, how it relates to the church being raptured or being caught up to be with the Lord. And chapter 5, again, to the, 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 the day and the seasons, the time and the seasons of the day of the Lord. And so beginning in chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Paul writes, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. But of the times... And of the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. For you are the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness." Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake 
or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also you do. So you, you, you see, again, how both of these, the Apostle Paul is dealing with something that's similar. And chapter 5 opens with the times and the seasons. I remember Pastor Chuck Smith telling this story of how at times he'd drive near the mall that was near Calvary Chapel Coast to Mesa South Coast Mall. It's in Orange County. It's a big mall area. And it was decorated for Christmas. You know, the streets, and they'd put up their Christmas decorations, but it was still the beginning of November. And so when Chuck sees these decorations, Pastor Chuck, he's riding in the car with his wife, Kay, and he says, Oh, look, Thanksgiving is really near. And his wife says to him, Chuck, what are you talking about? Those aren't Thanksgiving decorations. Those are Christmas decorations. And he says, I know they're Christmas decorations. But he said, Thanksgiving comes before Christmas. And if the Christmas decorations are already up, then Thanksgiving must be close. And in the same way, you could look at these two things that the Apostle Paul is talking about here in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Because he's talking about the rapture of the church in chapter 4. But in chapter 5, he begins by talking about the times and the seasons. In chapter 4, he says there in verse 13, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. And he's dealing with some of the false teaching that had crept into the church about having to be alive when Jesus returned. It was false. Even, the, even those brothers and sisters in Christ that had died weren't going to miss the rapture. They weren't going to be, miss being caught up to the, be with the Lord ever in the air as we read. But here's the thing. There are the times and the seasons that you can look at and say we are in those days. Now one of the things too that I mentioned, he says he doesn't want them to be ignorant, so he's educating them, teaching them kind of the chronology of how things are going to happen, the order in which things are going to happen in the last days. And one of the things I'll say at this point then is, is we're living in the last days. I know a lot of times there have been either believers or even non-believers have looked at the church and say, well, you know, you Christians, you, you're always saying that these are the last days, that Jesus is coming. Well, here's the thing. Biblically, we're standing on solid ground because on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, as the Spirit of God is poured out and as the disciples in the upper room are praising God in different tongues and languages, and they're rejoicing, and it's early in the morning, but because of the commotion, all those that are there in Jerusalem that are there to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost are kind of drawn to this activity, this commotion of the disciples in the upper room praising and rejoicing in a bunch of different languages that they couldn't speak because of the Spirit of God being poured out. And at first, as the crowd, the multitude began to question what's going on here, and even then they try to come up with some kind of an answer, and somebody just says, oh, those guys are just drunk. They've been drinking. And when Peter stands up to explain to them what is going on, he basically tells them it's, it's too early in the morning to be drinking. We're not drinking. And he points out how this is a fulfillment of prophecy of Joel chapter 2, the pouring out of God's Spirit. And he, he says in Acts chapter 2 verse 16 that this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh 
and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens will I pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's so much in that, you know, few verses, but the thing I want to draw your attention to is that when Peter explains the pouring out of God's Spirit, he says God had already said that this was going to happen in the book of Joel, and he said that this is something that would happen in the last days. You can say, well, Mike, it's been over 2,000 years. Are you telling me we're in the last days? I'm not telling you that. That's what God's Word says. It says that we've been living in the last days. I mean, since that point in time. And again, the church has, all, has lived from that point in time with the anticipation of being caught up to be with the Lord, but also, too, of what the Bible describes in verse 2 as the day of the Lord. Peter mentions that as well in uh, the prophecy that he is reading. And one of the things, too, uh, and again, you can say, well, how do, you, how do you reconcile that it's been 2,000 years and yet we're living in the last days? Well, God doesn't account time the same way men account time. For men, it, you know, it's been a long time, 2,000 years. Lord, we're still waiting. And here's the thing. We're supposed to live in that kind of anticipation, that hope. In 1 John chapter 3, when John says in his epistle that he that has this hope of the return of Christ, he says, he that has that hope purifies himself. You know, knowing that Jesus could come back at any time should have a purifying effect on my life. I should live my life in a way that I've got that constantly in the forefront of my mind or in my heart. That again, any decisions I make, I make with that in light, with eternity in mind but also, too, with the fact that Jesus could be returning today, tomorrow, the end of the week, the end of the month, or the end of the year. Again, too, we don't know, but God has designed it specifically that way. But how do you reconcile that it's been 2,000 years? Well, the Bible says that one day is as 1,000 years and 1,000 years as one day under the Lord. God dwells outside of time and space. Time isn't reconciled or accounted the way that we reconcile time. I mean, every time our planet goes around the sun, we count that as a year. But to God, again, too, He's the one that set all these things in motion. He created everything. He dwells outside of time and space. The Bible says He knows the beginning from the end. I mean, for God, everything, in a sense, probably He could look at time, and I'm just guessing, but He probably looks at time or looks at human history, and He's able to see it in a glance, in a moment. And all of you know, the summation of human history for Him is just a vapor, just like that. And at the same time, he probably looks at it, and it just probably is eternally long. And I mean, he, God doesn't account time the same the way that we do. And again, when we are in eternity, we probably will not be able to experience time the same way we do now. Last week when I was talking about the dead in Christ and how that when the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, afterwards uh, one or two people asked me, well, so what happens then if a person dies and then they're buried and then when the Lord returns and he comes for his church and then they're caught up and they're, 
they, they experience a change or resurrection moment in the twinkling of an eye, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I mean, is that person in a sense a state of soul sleep? I mean, that's kind of a, a term that has been used by some churches or even cults, basically to say that when a person dies, they're kind of in a state of unconsciousness buried in the ground waiting. And yet it's clear because the Bible teaches contrary or that that's not the case because, again, what does Paul say in his epistle to the Corinthians? He says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I believe that the moment that I die, if I were to die before the Lord's return, that moment I am instantly in His presence. And again, to another passage of Scripture to demonstrate that the soul doesn't sleep. Remember before Jesus goes to the cross, He takes three of His disciples up into the Mount Transfiguration. He takes Peter, James, and John, and while they're up there, they see Jesus in His glorified state, but who else do they see? Moses and Elijah. And they're conversing with Jesus, the Bible tells us, and they're actually talking about Him going to the cross, Him dying. But here's the thing. Peter and the other disciples are able to recognize that that's Moses and Elijah. Doesn't sound like they're sleeping to me. So again, you know, to be absent. And, and again, I think it has something to do with how we account time. Yes, maybe once I die and my body's laid in the ground, and then if the Lord returns, then I'm instantly changed or transformed. But because once the moment I die, I'm outside of time and space, I'm already in God's presence, experiencing the glories of eternity and of being with the Lord. But time and space aren't accounted the same way eternally. And Paul says that at the times and the seasons, brethren, you don't need that I write to you. I mean, I think for, I want you to think about this as if once you've made a commitment to Jesus Christ. I mean, and as you begin to read the Bible, and even before you came to Christ, didn't there, wasn't there this sense or this notion that the world is going to, eventually get to a place where it destroys itself where mankind and again too we've never lived in an age where man had the ability to destroy the world but now because of nuclear weapons I mean, we're able to destroy the entire planet many times over but again too did, wasn't there always this sense, even throughout human history, whether you're a believer or non-believer, regardless of what religion or philosophy you believe, that at some point at the end of human history, somehow everything was going to be destroyed? I mean, many cultures have that idea, that belief. Many people have that belief. But here's the thing that the Apostle Paul is saying to this group of believers in Thessalonica. He says, of the times and of the seasons, you have no need that I write unto you. I mean, we as believers know this. It's somewhat foundational because, again, too, we know that eventually God is going to establish His kingdom here on earth, that Jesus will rule and reign, and that man governing himself will come to an end. But before that time comes, God is going to judge this world for the rejection of the love that Jesus has shown on the cross. And Paul says the times and the seasons. It's interesting because, you know, the, the words that are used there in the Greek for times is the Greek word chronos, 
And again, it sounds somewhat familiar because if it sounds like a chronometer or something that's related to time, chronos. He says of the times, but the other the word that's used there in the Greek for seasons, in the Old King James it's translated seasons. In the NIV it says about the times and the dates, but the Greek word that's translated there in the Old King James for seasons, excuse me, is kahiros, kahiros. And the thing I, again, to just looking at how that word is defined, and it's translated 87 times in the New Testament, but that word in the Old King James is translated as seasons, or kahiros, means a due measure of time, a set measure of time. I kind of came up with my own definition just because I, it helps me to process or understand what the word means. But I, I defined it this way, a specified measure of time. And a lot of times, when I want to understand the meaning of a word a better, in a better way, I will look at the ways that it's used throughout the, the Bible, the New Testament. And the very first time it's used is when Jesus is casting the demons out of the demon-possessed man. And they're basically begging Jesus not to send them to the abuso. And they basically said, are you going to send us to the to the pit before our kahiros, before our time. In a sense, what they're saying is, is we have a set time here on earth. I mean, you know, are you going to send us to the pit of hell before our time is up? And Jesus then, again, too, he casts them into the swine. And then the swine jump off the cliff and commit suicide. Throw that in there. But the times and the seasons, I like the use of that word season because we live here in a part of the country where we experience seasons, don't we? I mean, right now, this is my favorite time of the year, the, the fall. The leaves are changing color. It's a little overcast today, but that's okay. I love wearing flannel shirts or sweatshirts, the coolness of it. Again, too, in the fall, you've got football, you've got the World Series. I don't know if anybody's following those games. I'm enjoying them. But again, too, we know from living here in Minnesota that we have four distinct seasons, fall, winter, spring, and summer. Right? I, I began with fall because that's where we're at right now. But we also know that the season has a specified measure of time. Now, granted, you could say, well, yes, you know, astrologically, is that right? Astrologically? Astronomy? No? Yes? Help me out, Jesse. Astronomy, but ast no. Somebody going to help me or not? You're just going to leave me hanging. May I just make up a word? Astronomically, that's the word I'm looking for. I'm not talking about the signs of the zodiac. Thank you, Cindy. Why don't you just say something instead of leaving me hanging? But anyway, you could say, well, yes, you know, the, the, the fall is going to end on, and I don't know if it's December 20th or 21st this year, and you could even point out the exact time in which the equinox takes place. And there is that turnover from the fall to winter. And again, too, you do the same thing from winter to spring and spring to summer. But here's the thing. For us, we might not be able to look at a calendar, but we can look at the seasons and we know we're in fall. We know at the time in which the fall is transitioning to the winter. 
because now once it turns into winter, now there's no more leaves on the tree. And now the weather is getting colder. The days are getting shorter. We have a potentiality for snowfall to take place. And then, you know, you know a few weeks into winter, we're in the middle of winter. And I bring this up because, again, it's a set or defined or specified period of time. And when Paul says of the times and of the seasons, basically, he's basically saying that to us as believers, we can look at the seasons that we're living in. And this is the season which will see the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's already been 2,000 years, but prophetically, that's what we're looking at. But he's also gonna, he also gives another example of a season to know that we're in that particular season. And it's when he refers in verse 3 to the day of the Lord coming. In verse 2 he says, you, you, you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. And when they shall say peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them as travail or birth pangs upon a woman with child. See, he basically, again, to using another way of defining a particular season in life. That when a woman is pregnant, she goes through nine months. She goes through a season in which that life is being developed in her body. And as she approaches the end of that season, and again, to some women, they deliver their babies. It doesn't happen all that often, but they deliver their babies right on the due date. Some women deliver a little bit early, some women a little bit late. They know that they're in the season. Uh, they know it's going to happen. They just don't know the exact day or hour when it happens. And the Bible uses that as an example of, again, to being prepared for when it happens. You, you're, you're living in the time and of the season. And in verse 2, when it talks about the day of the Lord, it's not talking about, again, to the church being raptured and taking up into the Lord's presence as it did in chapter 4. It's talking about the coming of God's judgment, the day of the Lord. Whenever it's mentioned in the scripture, it's always mentioned that way with reference to the judgment of God that is coming. And now I've got to find those passages real quick because i got them here. First place that it's mentioned is in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12. And it's mentioned quite a few times, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. But whenever that expression is used, the day of the Lord, it's talking about the judgment of God. The other thing that Paul says is that you yourselves know perfectly. We as believers, not only do we know the times and the seasons, but we also know that the day of the Lord is coming. It doesn't say that we're going to experience the day of the Lord. And again, to I point your attention to verse 9 when we get there as to why we're not going to experience the day of the Lord because we won't be here as the church. Also, it's kind of interesting to me because again, as he talks about the rapture at the end of chapter 4, in verse 18 he says, comfort one another with these words. Then as he talks about the day of the Lord and the coming destruction and the fact that God hasn't appointed us to wrath, in verse 11 he also closes with the same idea, comfort yourselves together. See, sometimes when it comes to the study of the coming of God's judgment, you know, there are churches that have avoided teaching anything that has to do with prophecy or anything that, in a sense, has anything to do with the judgment of God or the judgment of God of sinful man who's rejected the love of Jesus Christ. 
They just want to, you know, we don't want people to feel uncomfortable. Or we feel like it's a message of doom and gloom and, and, and fire and brimstone. And, and we just want our messages to be light and uplifting and encouraging. But you know what? As a pastor, as a teacher of God's word, I don't get to pick and choose what's being taught. I have to go with what God's word says. And for, as a pastor teacher, I will be held accountable for what is taught from God's word. I don't know if I should bring this up, but I'm going to as I think about it. Um, A week or two ago, I must have said something in a message that either somebody didn't agree with or... uh, And I like the fact that if somebody doesn't agree with me, typically someone will come up and say, Mike, this is what the scripture says, or Mike, I challenge what you just taught. And again, too, I'm willing to open up the scripture and look at it. I'm willing to look at some things and say, I just don't know. This is my opinion. But what someone did, they must have been either offended, upset, or again, have a different understanding of what the Bible says, and not just the Bible. But they left on my desk between services. So it had to be maybe between first and second service. They left on my desk this little pamphlet that had said articles of Mormonism, articles of faith for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And it was opened up, and then it had like, three or four particular places that were outlined, you know, and really outlined with intensity kind of a thing, and somehow saying, you know, you were wrong. It's just like, I wish that person would just simply talk to me instead of just dropping something off, putting it there, saying I disagree with you, or this is what I believe, and then just kind of, I I, I don't know, maybe they were visiting, or maybe it's somebody in our midst that, again, too, has Church of the Latter-day Saint tendencies. I don't know. But here's the thing. I want to be able to go back to what the Word of God says. And Paul says, you know the times and the seasons, but he also says, you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. We know what these things say. We know what the Word of God says. We don't have to shy away from it. We don't have to worry that it's a message of doom and gloom. When it comes up in the Scripture, I teach through it. When there are things that are encouraging, I teach them. When there are things that, again, too, are convicting, I'm not afraid to teach them because... Everything in God's Word serves a purpose, and it all needs to be taught because it's the inspired Word of God. And whenever the Word of the Day of the Lord is mentioned, all we is talking about, again, to Him, the Lord coming in judgment. The problem is, is as the church has waited over these last 2,000 years, the non-believers have looked at us and have said, well, you guys have been banging that drum for a while. The end is near, you know. But there are also believers, I think, that, again, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, I know when I first got saved in 81, there was the thought or the belief, and again, to the people that studied prophecy, did some, some interpreting of God's Word, interpreting of God's Word that led them to believe that Jesus was coming or, or the rapture would take place in 1981. Then there was some interpretation that it was going to take place in 83. And then 1988. And then when the Gulf War broke out. And then at the millennium. And then, again, too, there's lately there's been, you know, tried to make it that it's going to happen on a particular Jewish feast or the Feast of Trumpets. But here's the thing. I don't have to know the day or the hour. We know the times and the seasons that we're living in. And the problem sometimes with believers is they get so fixated on 
the return of Christ, trying to nail it down to a specific day or a specific feast or whatever, that again, too, you miss the point. It doesn't matter, again, too, because again, there have been much more educated and spirit-filled people than me over the last 2,000 years that thought that Jesus was coming, and he didn't. But does that undermine your faith when he doesn't? So the non-believers can scoff, but even too, sometimes the believers, if they're so fixated on this is when Jesus is coming back and then it doesn't happen, it, it ends up destroying their faith because Jesus didn't come back when they thought he did, was supposed to, or I must be wrong, or whatever. Peter talks about this when he says that in the last days, he says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, that there would be scoffers. And again, to thinking uh, that the return of Christ isn't going to take place, just like I'm not able to find the return of my notes. Let me just turn there. Second Peter chapter 3. Did I get this right? Yeah, I did get it right. Verse 1. This is the second epistle, beloved, that I write unto you, both to stir you up in your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you be mindful of the words which were spoken by the holy prophets and of the commandment of the, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. And he's going to go on and describe... You know, they're ignorant of God's past judgment, the flood, but that also, too, God is basically waiting and He's holding everything in reserve until the day of judgment when the fire basically consumes everything. And He says in verse 9 that the Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. The Bible talks place after place about the day of the Lord. I already mentioned, or maybe I didn't even read it. I mentioned Isaiah chapter 2, but in verse 12 it says, the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6, Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and it shall be as a destruction from the Almighty. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Joel chapter 2, verse 31. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. The last prophecy in the closing verses of the Old Testament found in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Our passage says, you, you know the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. See, we as believers, we know the time and the season, but when it actually takes place, those that aren't looking for it are going to be surprised 
by the day of the Lord, the judgment of God. He says, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them like birth pangs upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. I don't know if you've ever had your house broken into, but, you know, if you knew when your house was going to be broken into by a thief, you what? You would have been prepared. You would have been waiting. You would have been ready. But for the, the person that, that's never experienced that, we, we actually, you know, years ago when Sarah, before Sarah was born, we had our house broken into. We came home from work and, and found all the drawers pulled out and every cabinet and everything gone through, rifled through. I, I want to say we didn't have much taken because we, didn't, we don't have much things that the thieves wanted anyway. But what they did take, I had just been working for Best Buy for maybe about a year then. And back then Best Buy was just a local Twin City company. But you get a great discount. I don't know if they still offer that to their employees, but it was like 5% over cost for electronics. So Lynn and I, we didn't have a TV for, I think, the first nine years we were married. So we had a nice new TV. I mean, back then, it was, I, mean, we, I think we had a 21-inch TV. We thought that was big. What, 21 inches? Wow. <laughs> you laugh at that now. 21 inches? <laughs> you put that in the backseat of your car kind of a thing. That's not big. We had stereo equipment. And again, too, one of the reps for one of the companies that Best Buy sold stereo equipment through, they came and they basically sold the employees. We could buy stereo equipment directly from this rep at cost. And so it was even cheaper than buying it at Best Buy. So we had a television, we had stereo equipment, we had a camera, 35 millimeter camera that I bought when I was in the Marine Corps. And that's pretty much all they stole. But again, too, it happened. It catches you unaware. And afterwards, you're just like, man, I wish I'd have been ready. Or why, again, too, you just don't think it's going to happen to you. You think, well, this is a nice neighborhood. I would have never thought this was going to happen. But the other thing that happens is once it happens, then you kind of are prepared, hopefully, for the next time it happens, or at least you, you want to be prepared. The problem is it's too late then. And when Paul talks about it, when the Bible talks about the day of the Lord coming as a thief in the night, people aren't going to be ready for it. People are going to think, and our world has been moving in a direction towards it being unified and globalized. It's moving towards this direction of even countries surrendering their sovereign power and everybody kind of vesting into this idea that we are a global community and that somehow if we unite together, we can solve the world's problems. We can solve the problems of war, and we can solve the problems of famine, and we can solve the problems of disease and pestilence and of poverty and all these different things if we could just simply unite together. And it's a gradual thing, but it's definitely the direction that most nations in this world are moving towards. Terrorism. We can solve the, the problem and deal with terrorism. The problem is, is that it just hasn't proven or has been, it hasn't been demonstrated any place on the planet that man can govern himself, whether it's on a small scale or whether it's on a global scale. And again, too, look at how divided cities are, states are, 
countries are. We're approaching the election. I mean, we've never been more divided as a nation coming into the, the election. Why? Because we have, again, two different beliefs. And, and the only thing that's going to happen as this world moves towards the fulfillment of, of Bible prophecy, Daniel chapter 2 talks about this last kingdom that will govern, that will govern in, the, in the last days of this world. You know, the only thing that's going to happen is, is that nations will surrender their power. And again, too, then we're going to be left with a person that will be able to, to kind of dictate what takes place and peace will be imposed upon people. But it's not going to be something where it's like, oh, we've got peace, everybody's happy, you know, hold hands, sing kumbaya, I love my neighbor kind of thing. None of that's going to happen. But it's what the Bible describes with concern to the Antichrist. And we'll get to even greater detail when we get to 2 Thessalonians. But what's going to happen in that time frame is, is people are going to feel this false sense of peace and of safety. And that's when the day of the Lord will take place. It'll be sudden. There'll be destruction. It'll be, again, too, because a woman is with child, you know that you're living in the times and the seasons, but when that first birth pang hits, it's going to hit like that. We just, you just don't know when it's going to hit. But it is going to hit. And the thing that the Bible says, that Paul goes on to say here, is he says this in verse 4, to us, but you brethren, are not in darkness. I mean, I think you can understand that, that we're not in darkness. Uh, verse 1, of the times and the seasons, we don't need to be written to. I mean, we're not in darkness. Why? Because the light of Jesus Christ has shown into our hearts. In 1 John chapter 1, it says that if we confess our faults, we walk in fellowship with Him. We are, we, as we, we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from our sin. I mean, there is, in a sense, an understanding, an illumination, a light that has taken place for the person that's received Christ as their Savior. And as a result, we're not in darkness. Well, you know what? We're also not in darkness because we have God's Spirit dwelling in us, telling us these things. We have God's Word telling us these things. And granted, there are churches and there are individual believers that don't want to read what God's Word says, but we're not in darkness. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not in darkness that the day of the Lord would overtake you as a thief, he says there in verse 4. Verse 5, but you are the children of light and the children of the day. You are not of the night nor of darkness. There's no in-between. You can't be in the light and be in the darkness at the same time. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you're either one or the other. As a non-believer or someone who's rejected what Jesus has done, you can't say, I'm in the light. You're either in the light or you're in the dark. There's a line that is crossed. You're not born into the family of God or into the, uh, be a, being a child of light. It is a choice that you make. It, the same way as a choice when you walk into a dark room, whether or not you're going to flip that switch and turn the light on or continue to walk in darkness. In turning that light on and making that choice for Jesus Christ, you're flipping the light on. Okay, I'm going to put the light on. I'm going to allow the light to expose the sin in my life. I'm willing to humble myself and say, Jesus, please forgive me and wash me from my sin. 
But if you're ashamed or embarrassed or you don't want anybody to know or you don't want to confess or acknowledge your sin, you're just like, okay, I'm going to keep the light off. I'm going to continue. The Bible says that men, men's deeds are done in darkness. And we don't want people to see there's a conviction of sin. But he says, you're not children of the light. You know, you're not in the darkness that you're the children of light. You're children of the day. You're not of the night nor of the darkness. Verse 6 then says our actions reflect that. Or it should. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. We need to be, in a sense, alert as to the times and the seasons that we're living in. Again, not thinking, well, you know what, I've been waiting for Jesus to come, and I've been waiting a long time, and I'm just going to kind of do my own thing. And, and you know, if I, it's kind of like being at work, too. Sometimes people have this, you know, a way to illustrate it would be talking about how people think about work. Because, again, too, as Christians, you think, okay, Jesus is coming back. I've been a Christian now for a long time. <laughs> I want to do the math, but I can't. My brain just does not. I got saved in 1981, so the rest of you can do the math. What is that, 35 years? 35 years. We'll round it up or down or whatever. But for 35 years, I still believe that we will see the return of Jesus Christ in my generation. But I could be wrong. But it doesn't change my faith. Here's the thing. In Luke chapter 12... Jesus likens his return and the importance for us as servants to be doing the Lord's work while we wait. He likens it to a, a guy who's gone off to get his bride. In Jewish culture, the, the groom would go, in a sense, and get his bride and then bring her home. And the thing is, you didn't know when the master of the house would come back with his bride, so the servants, in a sense, had to be busy working and doing whatever it is that they need to do as servants, the tasks that the master had left them with. And as he describes this, again, too, it's like those of you that work, and maybe your boss has given you a project, and you're thinking, okay, my boss, he's going to be out of town for a day or two. I'm not exactly sure. He doesn't know. He's going on a business trip. He doesn't know exactly what day he's coming back, but I know he's going to come back, and when he comes back, he's going to check up on me on my progress, whether or not I completed my project. The problem is sometimes the, the person that's a lazy employee will think, well, uh, you know what? He's done this before, and he, he usually, I've got extra time, so I'm not going to start working on this till a day or two before he comes back. The problem is if he comes back on time or even if for some reason he came back early and then were to check up on you and say, would you finish the project? Well, uh, I didn't know. What, what have you been doing these last few days? And again, it's the same kind of idea is, is that regardless of when the boss comes back, regardless of when our master returns, it doesn't change us living a life that is waiting for his return. It demonstrates our faithfulness. And again, I want to mention Luke chapter 12 because this actually comes on the heels of, I think Luke does kind of a condensed version of the Sermon on the Mount. But he says in verse 
35, to let your loins or your clothing be girt about you and your lights burning, and you yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, and when he comes and knocks, that you may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he comes, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself. This is the master now serving them. He will gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch or in the third watch, he's talking about, you know, at night now and into the night, in the middle of the night, if the master comes back then and he finds them so, meaning waiting, ready to open the door to their master, he says, blessed are those servants. Verse 39, and this know that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have allowed his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man comes in an hour when you think not. So Peter in verse 40, 41 is going to want some clarification. I think I understand this, Lord, but are you talking to just us as your disciples or are you talking to everybody? Does this whole thing of you leaving and then returning and us watching and waiting, is this just for us or is this for everybody? And basically, this is what the Lord's answer is in verse 42. Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord will make ruler over his household to give him their portion of meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom the Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant say in his heart, my Lord delays his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and the maidens, and to eat and to drink and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he's not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware and will cut him asunder or cut him off and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, self, neither did according to his will, will be beaten with many stripes. But he which knew not and di didn't, commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes from to whomsoever much is given of him shall much be required and to whom men have committed much of him they will ask the more see we know we profess to be the servants and you're either going to be a faithful servant fulfilling God's will and are ready for his return or you're going to be an unfaithful servant thinking he's not coming yet or I've got time, or, you know, I'll, I'll get serious about my walk with the Lord at some point when I really see things getting serious. Well, here's the thing. We don't know when the rapture is going to take place, and we don't know when the day of the Lord is going to come. But the bottom line is, is if we're the children of the day, we need to be living that way. And he says in verse 6 that we're not to sleep, but we're to watch and be sober. In verse 7, they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that are drunken, are drunken in the night. Does the Bible say that we shouldn't drink? The Bible says that we shouldn't get drunk. I mean, I know you could, people, it's actually become somewhat fashionable among some Christian churches to say, well, we have a liberty, and the Bible doesn't say we can't get drunk. And there are churches, in the same way many churches have like a little coffee area or a coffee shop. Now there are churches 
that have bars and come on in and have a beer with us kind of a, a mentality. I'm serious. But the thing is, it's like, I mean, I had to tell you, once I got saved, it's like, okay, I want my life. I never had a problem with alcohol. It, it's not a temptation for me. It was never an addiction. I, I could count probably on one hand before I got saved the times that I got drunk as a non-believer. It's not like I was a big partier. I like to have a beer because I ran a lot when I was in the Marine Corps. And after going out for a four or five mile run, I'd come back and I'd like to have a can or a bottle of beer to kind of replenish my, my body fluids. I like the taste of it. I don't want to endorse alcohol in any way, but that was before I got saved. I mean, after I got saved, it's like, I don't have to drink beer anymore. It does nothing for me. I had no attachment to it. It's not like I thought, well, I better stop drinking beer because, again, too, it might be a bad witness, but, man, it's going to be hard. It's going to be so hard to give up my beer that I have. Or for some people, maybe other things. It's going to be so hard to give that up. Give it up. You mean what God has done in giving you salvation and washing your life clean and giving you power to resist the temptations of sin and again, too, the promise of living eternally with him. And it's like, I just want to hang on to my beer. <laughs> really? It's like, put it on a scale. Tell me which one really, when it comes to eternity, which has much more weight to it. And again, too, if you have a liberty to do some of these things, that's fine. But God's word also says that our liberty should never be used as an occasion to stumble someone else. And again, in the scripture, the Bible talks about those that would be in leadership, elders of the church or pastor. They're held to a higher standard. So again, too, I don't, even though maybe I could have a liberty, I don't want anybody to look at me and say, well, Pastor Mike has a beer every now and then or, or drinks a glass of wine every now and then. Must be okay. Well, again, too, I don't want to put my liberty out there and then someone feel like they can have the same liberty when they don't because they have an addiction to it. So... Uh, again, you know, the thing that Paul, the point that Paul makes, though, and again, I think everyone would agree, if you knew that Jesus was coming tomorrow or at the end of the week or at the end of the month, how would it affect the way you live your life today? I think we would clean it up, wouldn't we? We just want to make sure. I know I have a liberty to have a, a, a bottle of beer every now and then, but, you know, Jesus is coming back at the end of the month. I don't want to take any chances, so I'm going to stop drinking for the next month. I mean, the thing, that, the point that Paul is making is, is that the children of light stay in the light. They're walking in the light. Everything is out there in the light. But those that are children of darkness, they are ashamed. There's a conviction that even the non-believer has. I mean, granted, we live in a day and age now where it seems like the darkness is all around us and now there's a boasting or a pride in sinful actions and living and behavior. But the bottom line is, is there's still a conviction that people have and they do those things in the night. They sleep in the night. They're drunken in the night. He says in verse 8 though, but let us who are of the day, she's fine, unless you're going to change her again. <laughs> but it says in verse 8, but let us who are of the day, maybe my gentle voice will put her to sleep because it puts others to sleep. Uh, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of... Interesting how similar this is to the armor of God that Paul mentions in the book of Ephesians. I mean, it's, it is a spiritual battle that we're in. 
But if we're going to shine as the children of the day, we also need to be clothed that way. And he says, let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and of love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And I love verse 9 because he says, God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, he's talking about the day of the Lord coming. Yes, it's going to take the non-believer by surprise. Yes, there's going to be judgment. But in its context, when he says that God hasn't appointed us to wrath, he's not talking about eternity, salvation. Yeah, we know that. We're saved because of what Jesus has done. And we're not going to be, you know, suffering the, the consequences of, of rejecting Christ in hell. He's talking about we're not going to be appointed to the wrath that's coming on this world. I believe that's what he's saying there very clearly. And again, too, it addresses the different positions that people take when it comes to the rapture, when it's going to take place, whether it's a pre-tribulational view, a mid-tribulational view, or a post-tribulational view. The problem with the mid and the post-tribulational view is, again, too, you could probably figure it out by when the tribulation begins as to when the rapture would take place, whether it's mid or post. But the other thing is, is there, there are those, and I, I've heard this argument before, well, you know, the church is going to go through the tribulation because of how, uh, you know, God is wanting to purify His bride. And I'm thinking, well, that doesn't line up with what the Scripture says either because Jesus already purified His bride, the church, by what He did on the cross. The bride of Christ isn't clothed in its own righteousness and no amount of persecution or trials. Okay, now I'm going to live holy for Christ now that I see everybody dying around me. No, it's too late for that. The bride of Christ is already waiting and ready and clothed in righteousness and living in the light so that again to when Jesus comes for his bride, He's coming so that the church or that his bride wouldn't have to go through any of the wrath that's coming. God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter in his epistle gives Lot as an example, and he gives Noah as an example, and how that God is able to reserve the righteous, keep them, and allow only then the unrighteous for judgment. And it says that Jesus, in verse 10, has died for us. And he says, whether we wake or sleep, that we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify or build up one another, even as also you do. The times and seasons that we're look, living in, and as we look around this world, if your focus is on those things, you could be discouraged, overwhelmed, you could wonder, when is Jesus coming for his bride, the church? But if you know what God's word says, and if you're living as a child of God, a child of light, a child of the day, and if you, again, too, are standing on the promise and know that God hasn't appointed us to wrath, there's a great comfort in that. I know I'm comforted by that because it's so easy to forget these things. But once we look at these things, it, again, too, we're comforted by it, but we can build up each other in those truths as well. And that's the point or the purpose of this.
Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, we, as we are reminded of these truths, Lord, if there's areas of our lives that, again, too, we're thinking that your return is delayed or that we have time, or even, too, if we're just flat-out living in darkness, Lord, help us to turn from the darkness, to turn to you, Lord Jesus Christ, and to walk in the light and receive not only the forgiveness of our sins, but, Lord, to enjoy the fellowship that comes from walking in the light. I pray, Lord, for your people. I pray, God, that we would shine as lights in the midst of a dark and wicked generation that we're living in. And, Lord, we do pray for your return, that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. Lord, we love you, and it's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. If you have any questions or need some prayer, just ask Jesse, because I'm my brain is already pretty much cooked on all this, so you're free.